Good evening, everyone. I'm Rebecca Sorenda, Head of the Department of Social Policy and Intervention, and it's my great pleasure to invite you to this very special event in the department's annual calendar, the Sydney Ball Memorial Lecture. Um, we are delighted tonight to have as our guest speaker uh, Professor Colin Crouch, who uh, has many titles and accolades. Among them, he's Vice President for Social Sciences for the British Academy. And in a few minutes, I'm going to hand over to Professor Mary Daly, who will do the formal introduction of, uh, of Colin and who will convene uh, this evening's lecture. But before I do that, I want to just spend a few minutes telling you about the background to this evening's lecture, and in particular, um, about the man in whose honor this series is named. Um, Barnet House, as the department in the building at number 32 Wellington Square is colloquially known, instituted a special annual lecture soon after it was founded in 1914. The first Barnet House lecture was given in 1917 and published by OUP the same year. It was somewhat uninspiringly titled Barnet House Paper No. 1. Um, <laughs> given the date and the backdrop of the First World War, it's actually interesting that the first lecture focused on the problem of juvenile crime, perhaps signalling an early concentration on substantive, if somewhat unglamorous social policy problems of the day. Sidney Ball, a philosophy fellow at St John's College, Oxford, was the first president of Barnet House at its foundation in 1914. He died shortly afterwards in March 18, and a memorial endowment and lecture series named in his honour was established. The first Sidney Ball Memorial Lecture was delivered in December 1920 by the wonderfully named Right Honourable Sir Horace Curzon Plunkett, who is an MP from Ireland in the House of Commons. Plunkett began his first lecture by stating that the aim of the lecture series would be the promotion of an intimate and mutually helpful relationship between the thought of the university, which Sidney Ball adored, and the working life of the community he lived to serve. This introductory statement perfectly captured the essence of the Sydney Ball lecture of Sydney Ball himself and the conceptualization of the lecture series. Ball was a deeply progressive man and above all a practical reformer. He was actively engaged in the university politics and reforms of his time and he was renowned for his successful pragmatism. He was particularly supportive of women in the university, though sadly he died before women gained full membership of, of the university in 1920. And he was a strong promoter of working class education. Above all, he was a champion for the university to be directly engaged with real world contemporary problems and for the role of the social sciences in their solution. Sidney Ball was determined that contemporary social and economic problems should be studied at Oxford. The various lectures since 1920 on topics such as education, poverty, unemployment, crime, voluntary action, social services, medical ethics, as well, of course, as the great, important work, great, <laughs> um, meaning very good, important work of present-day members of the department are a great testament to Sidney Ball's vision and legacy. 
For more information about Sydney Ball, you've all been handed leaflets as you arrived. Um, can I encourage you during the reception to please take a look at and purchase even uh, the recently published book on the history of Barnet House. Um, it's aptly titled Social Inquiry, Social Reform, Social Action. Uh, it was published in 2014 to mark the de department's um, centenary. And the authors of the, the book, George Smith, Elizabeth Peretz, and Teresa Smith, will be on hand to sign copies. So please do take a look at that um, if you can. With that, I welcome you all to the 2016 Sydney Ball Memorial Lecture. So it's um, my great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor uh, Colin Crouch and to tell you a little bit about his background. Um, so he's currently Professor Emeritus at Warwick University, um, at the University of Warwick. His long and distinguished career has seen him hold high-level posts at the London School of Economics, the University of Bath. Um, Oxford, where he was a fellow in politics and sociology at Trinity College from 1985 to 1994, after which he moved to the European University Institute at Florence and held a chair in comparative social institutions. And when he left that, he moved to Warwick and held a chair as professor of governance and public management. A sociologist by background, Professor Crouch has written some of the most important work on comparative social policy. Anyone working in the fields on which we teach and research in our department will come across his work very quickly and recognize in it a signature contribution to knowledge of the politics and institutions associated with the welfare state. The long trajectory of his career has seen him moving from a focus on industrial relations, systems as differentially embedded in European state traditions, to European social models more broadly, and more recently to the complex interaction between uh, democracy and neoliberalism in particular. Among the important topics on which he has contributed seminal uh, contributions are the changing nature of work, its causes and consequences, um, the changing modalities of governance, uh, social cohesion in Europe, and the nature of social change itself. What I learn and relearn from his work is the complex and varied nature of European social models, the need to take the long arc of history into account and to see European societies as hallmarked, not just by a set of political institutions, but also by a series of social and cultural settlements that vary cross-nationally. To my mind, Colin, the, your 2009 bo uh, two, uh, 1999 book on social change in Western Europe is a real classic, and I keep going back to it. And I hope the students, by the way, took note of those points, because we'll expect that reproduced in the exams. <laughs> Professor Crouch's recent work engages with profound questions about the politics of our time, um, covering not just British uh, political and economic developments, but those in Europe more broadly, as well as global developments. And this work, too, is hallmarked by what I see as his signature contribution a focus in the first instance on outlining in some detail empirical trends and then offering a theoretical framework within which to interpret these trends. He has written five books, 
five books since 2011. I was wondering what you did in that spare year, that six years. Uh, among these are uh, his work on post-democracy, um, his 2015 book on governing social risks in post-crisis societies, and probably many of you will know also his 2011 book uh, entitled On the Strange Non-Death of Neoliberalism, in which he predicts that neoliberalism is a phenomenon that we're going to have to continue to live with, um, not least because of the way in which it intersects with and is reproduced by the distribution of power in society. That book, by the way, won the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung Political Book Award. Finally, um, I would like to make mention of Professor Crouch's academic and public service. Um, and there are two different types of service that one should draw attention here. On the one hand is his contribution to the academic community, which he has taken forward especially through his work on the, with the British Academy, where, as Rebecca said, he has been vice president of the social sciences, or for the social sciences since 2012 his service to the Max Planck Institute for uh, Gesellschaftsforschung, and indeed his contribution to this university. And he is, was telling me beforehand that he has been a junior proctor, um, something he shares with others here. He's been a delegate to Oxford University Press, and he was a curator of the Bodleian Library for uh, a significant period of time. Concomitantly, and more recently, I think it would be fair to say that his public service is developing in a rather different way in what I would see his role of reaching out as a political and public intellectual, making his analysis and theorizations uh, available through more public channels like newspapers, but also through blogs and um, opinion pieces in various ways. And in this regard, I would like to draw people's attentions, particularly to the very valuable policy briefs he regularly produces on the site Social Europe. In this and other ways, his work is in the tradition of Sidney Ball and the Barnett House emphasis on uh, social reform and the commitment to give the study of contemporary economic and social problems a central place in Europe. So Colin, I'd like to invite you to give the lecture. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Mary. You go to a university to, to give a seminar, and the chair says, oh, today's speaker is Colin Crouch, and you have no expectations to fight against. Uh, unfortunately, this is not a university seminar. Um, <laughs> This is the second time within a year that I've had the enormous honour of being invited to give a memorial lecture for great figures in the history of, of Barnet House. As, uh, last December, I was asked to give a lecture in memory of Chelly Horsey, who died last year. Uh, and now I've got the honour of doing a lecture for Sydney Ball. And... I'm aware of that there will be some overlap between the audiences, which means I can't give the same lecture again. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want to give a completely different lecture because there's only so many things one can talk about. And also, there, there's a, kind of a theme that I was pursuing last year that I would like to keep on at. And so this is a continuation. This is part two. It's, it's Crouch's Barnet House Memorial Lectures, part two. Uh, 
So I'm going to start by giving a very brief summary of where I got in my argument last year. It's just possible even those who were there don't remember every word I said. Uh, and there are lots of people who weren't there. Um, and then the lead into the, the meat of, um, of today's lecture, which is actually about uh, the, the social investment welfare state and how it is developing among different countries in Europe. The title is a generic title that Mary suggested to me when she invited me several months ago now, well before June. Um, and I said, yeah, that'll do as a frame. There's no particular reason why Britain gets a special mention, except some people don't believe it is in Europe. But this is not a Brexit. <laughs> That's the only Brexit rant you get, right? No more Brexit rant. It's not a Brexit le uh, lecture um, at all. Um, now, what, well, last year I, I, I started off by looking at uh, policies about new social risks. There was an interesting development in the 1990s, oh, it starts in the 80s, goes into the 90s, based really on the work of the German sociologist Ulrich Beck, who claimed, who'd done those great generalizations that academics sometimes do, that we'd move from what he called the first modern into the second modern. And in the first modern, uh, and indeed in previous societies, uh, ordinary people confronted risk as danger. And it was scary and uncertain. Uh, and, and they needed a welfare state that protected them uh, against those dangers. Uh, in the second modern, people saw the world as full of opportunities. And risk was not facing danger, risk was opportunity. Now Beck takes this in all sorts, took, he died a year or so ago, Beck took this in all sorts of directions, some of them quite dark actually, but it, it was seized on by creative political thinkers uh, seeking to reformulate the welfare state. In this country it was done in particular by Tony Giddens, uh, who, who took the concept of new social risks and said, aha, this means we don't need the old welfare state so much anymore, protection against unemployment, sickness, uh, so forth. Uh, instead, we can have a welfare state that equips people to face the uncertainties of a future where they have many opportunities. Out of this came very interesting and constructive ideas. It meant you wanted policies for uh, massively policies for education because the people would be better equipped to face the uncertain future, better equipped to take advantage of risks if they were well educated. So you had education, education, education. Also, uh, labour market policy, uh, dealing with problems of, of potential unemployment, for example, should not really be so much about compensation for unemployment through benefits, it should be equipping people through training and job counselling and a bit of workfare uh, so that they were able to re-enter the labour market and if they faced labour market uncertainty they would know there would be all this help for them so they wouldn't uh, be worried about it, they'd embrace the risks of the future. Also, it was necessary to get as many people as possible in the labour market. The modern economy needed people, educated workers, and therefore, uh, and this is something we now take for granted, actually, that, that, that we needed a two-gender 
workforce and not just a male workforce. Therefore, it was very important that there were childcare policies. So childcare policies were part of confronting new social risks. Now, it seems a bit odd if you're told uh, uh, education, um, labor market, active labour market policy and childcare are social risks. And you can only understand why it's called that if you go back to that formulation of Beck about an alleged change in the nature of risk. Uh, out of this also came the view that the welfare state should be seen as something which contributes to the economic future. The welfare state was not a kind of bucket in which you wasted a load of money on people who were just who were going to do nothing except hang around until they died. The welfare now that was actually a total uh, travesty of the kind of welfare state that people like Sidney Ball and eventually Beveridge envisaged. The, 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 the original old social risks welfare state was always seen as something that would give working people confidence to face the future. It was, all, it was, it was never seen as just a sort of bucket that you, 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 you threw unnecessary people into. Uh, but it had come to be seen in that negative way and the advocates of new social risks said, ah, oh, this welfare state we're talking about actually contributes to the economy. It's part of the investment because a, a modern economy needs more than anything else educated, well-trained people. Uh, and so it's a social investment. So out of that came the concept of social investment welfare state. And these are very useful ideas. Uh, the only problem with them was that it assumed we were now living in a, a brave new world where the awful uncertainties of massive unemployment and, and major economic disruption would no longer happen. Uh, it was all written bef well before 2007. And what we've learned since is, yes, we do need the policies for the new social risks, but we also need the policies for the old social risks as well. The idea that you could replace the spending on the old social risk policies by the new ones was uh, very optimistic. Now, I, it, I then want, went on in this lecture to talk about risk in, more, in a different way. And I referred to a book written in 1923 by a British economist living in the United States, a man called Arthur Knight, who distinguished between risk and uncertainty. And after the lecture, someone who was in the audience reminded me, well, I didn't remind me because I didn't know, um, told me that in exactly the same year, John Maynard Keynes had written a book on exactly the same subject. Uh, it, both these men had developed the idea that the basic concept is uncertainty. Uh, uh, that, that's a major economic issue, whether it's for workers or for entrepreneurs. Knight was mainly interested in entrepreneurs, uh, Keynes more in, in everybody. Uh, that... Uh, some uncertainty was subject to probability theory. You could predict how an uncertainty was likely to turn out with some degree of confidence. And once you could do that to an uncertainty, it became risk and you could trade it. And so you then get a distinction between tradable risk and residual uncertainty. And it seemed to me that is something that the new social risks people had not taken into account. The basic issue that can affect economic life, especially for working people, but also for entrepreneurs, is uncertainty. Some people are able to buy bits of uncertainty that they then trade in, but there's always a residual uncertainty 
that's left. And of course, as, it, as it's traded down, the people left with the untradable uncertainty are those who have neither the resources nor the expertise to deal in tradable risk. So these social risks is all very well, but there's always going to be some people on whom residual uncertainty is dumped. Um, and at that point, I introduced into the argument a, te a biblical text. Because um, Shelley Horsey uh, and Sidney Ball and, and uh, uh, Samuel Barnett were all seriously Christian people. And this, Matthew 25, is a chapter that must have given them all trouble. It, Matthew 25 is the chapter in which the, uh, Christ gives the, the, the parable of the talents, where a master gives three slaves different sums of money, ten, ten talents, five and one. And, tells them, and then he comes back after a number of years. And the one to whom he gave ten has invested it and has got masses. And he says, that's wonderful, you can have even more. And the one who's got five, he's invested and got a bit. So he says, right, you can have a bit more. And the one who's just given one talent uh, says, I just, got, I just buried it in the ground. I was scared of losing it. And Christ says the master just takes his talent away from him and sends him into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because he says, the moral of the story is, to him that hath, more shall be given, and he shall have abundance. For to him that hath not, shall be taken away, even that which he hath. Um, a problematic text. Uh, <laughs> it's all right if you give a theological interpretation of it. But if it's about money, but to my, my view, the poor devil with the one talent was the one who faced the residual uncertainty. See, for all we know, the ones with the ten and five talents also buried one in the ground for safekeeping, but they had plenty of other things they could play in the stock markets with. The chap who only had one, no, he had only the one, it was in, and it's an indivisible thing, right? Uh, so he is getting the residual uncertainty. Um, and so he's the sort of person that social policy is about. Now, in the 1990s, coming on into the beginning of this century, People thought they'd solved the problem of residual uncertainty because with expanding financial markets, uh, globalising markets, constantly expanding possibilities for secondary trading, uh, it seemed that risk could be traded on and on and on and shared among so many people that eventually it disappeared altogether. And so we got the wonderful financial markets which enabled people who would be those bearing residual uncertainty uh, to, to take on very heavy mortgages, to take on big credit card debt, because people were willing to have their debt. See. So uh, if the man with the talent had been living in those days, a financial advisor would have come to him and said, give me your talent, there's no risk, right? We can sell bits of this on and, and, and eventually you'll be all right. And then 2008 came and he was back with the gnashing of teeth, which is where he always started. So, that, that, so my argument was about that, how we can't get rid of residual uncertainty, and social policy has to be about that. And if you look at the way social investment welfare state ideas have developed since, uh, since 2008 in particular, you'll see there's much more uh, interest in combining old and new social risks. Uh, it also comes together in, in another set of policies um, that have very, been very important in European Commission debates, and that is the idea of flexicurity. 
in the 1990s, there was all the stress in policy making around the world was on making labour markets more flexible, which meant taking away workers' security. Uh, because it was believed, and the evidence on it is extremely mixed, it was believed that it was workers' rights that inhibited employment. The, 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 from some economist's perspective, the main thing employers want to do when they employ someone is to make sure they can sack them easily. Um, it's not often, it, often that isn't what employers do, but it's believed that, that if, if they can't sack people easily, they won't employ them. So the idea was you should liberate labour markets and, and get rid of employment protection. Um, in the end, I think the policy justified itself because what employers did was to start finding ways of getting around uh, labour market rules by employing temporary workers, sometimes people in the shadow economy, uh, people on funny contracts in this, in this country by uh, making people self-employed, pretending they're self-employed while really employing them. Or, uh, and in the end, employment security law has ended up protecting a minority of people, especially older male workers, uh, against everybody else. So in, in the end, the policy of opposing labour market regulation, I think, has, has been its own justification. But meanwhile, as ideas were developing, people gradually began, experts, economists, policy makers, began to appreciate the fact that just making people more and more insecure um, wasn't always helpful. And what you wanted was a new formulation of a combination of flexibility and security. So hence, flexicurity. And a series of ideas, mainly coming from Denmark and the Netherlands, uh, were developing about how you might change social policy so that it wasn't just protecting people, it was also making them flexible, but giving them security in their flexibility. So the flexicurity is very similar to the ideas of the social investment welfare state. And, and that's where debates have reached, really. Uh, and so what I want to do now is to look and see whether, to what extent these ideas about social investment welfare state have, have had traction. To what extent can we see evidence of them being adopted, in particular, uh, running across the years of the crisis. I'm mainly going to be comparing to 2005 with, with last year, 2015. So in other words, uh, looking at a year before the crisis and then looking at and 10 years later where we are now. Uh, have ideas about social investment welfare state, about moving to those policies that I was talking about, have they survived? Have they been weakened? Um, and is the story different in different countries? And here I'm going to link up with a literature that a lot of the audience will be very familiar with, the, the literature on different kinds of welfare state, um, which started by uh, Jester Esping Andersen, Danish so social policy specialist, who identified three welfare state families. Um, start with going through his original formulation. First, there's the, the Nordic or social democratic form of welfare state, uh, which is found uh, in the Nordic countries. I, I haven't usually included Iceland in my work, um, but it seems it's very small, uh, very isolated, but a country that within a few years can cause a volcano that disrupts air travel throughout the world, a major international banking crisis and knocking them out of the European 
football competition deserves to be taken seriously and at least included in statistical studies. Uh, and it also means that the Nordic, the Nordic group gets a bit bigger, because uh, you need quite a few cases. So uh, Esping Anderson first identifies this group as, as welfare states based on universal benefits of, of a very generous kind. Then, uh, well, actually, he, he had a, a rather light. He then has, well, actually, he doesn't. He, he has something else first, but I'll come to that next. Um, he's got three, and he had a residual category, really, which he called continental conservative, uh, and it was actually all of those up there. Um, these are seen as welfare states based on the Bismarckian principles of social insurance, based on the concept of a male breadwinner, uh, and welfare state benefits uh, would be very much based on your status in work. Uh, so whereas the Scandinavian Nordic model uh, was rather egalitarian and redistributive, uh, the continental conservative one, although generous, uh, was, um, was very much based on, on work status and therefore inegalitarian. Um, I've put Switzerland in brackets because very few people ever talk about Switzerland and, and, and it, it doesn't fit a lot of the categories, but it is part of that model. Now, um, Esping Anderson did not distinguish between Northern and Southern Europe, but immediately uh, scholars started to say, look, it's different in Italy, Portugal, Spain, and, and again, Greece, slightly different case, Russian Orthodox, or Greek Orthodox case, but uh, th those four don't actually have welfare states of the kind that you've got in Northwest Europe. Uh, the welfare states uh, there were, were, were see, see, welfare states in, in, in Austria, Belgium, Germany, so forth, were, were, were very much the creation of modernizing elites who were wanting to create uh, industrial societies. This, for a long while, this wasn't the case in Southern Europe. It was usually very conservative elites trying to, uh, in three of the cases there, uh, actually under some kind of fascist rule until the 1970s, uh, wanting to preserve the strong family. And so although, in theory, it's a Bismarckian system, it was one based not only on uh, providing a, a, a status-based welfare state, but also one that very much insisted on the family's responsibilities. So it was, they weren't generous welfare states for a long time. Um, and most research nowadays separates the southern so-called familistic group from the, the northwestern group. <laughs> Then Esping Anderson had an Anglophone group. Um, now, unfortunately, most of those aren't in Europe, because uh, USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, but um, we've got two in Europe. Um, and then I've, be, I've played with the idea, actually it doesn't come to anything, but there are two little societies that actually share British history, Cyprus and Malta. If we're looking at historical institutions and how they developed, Hypothetically, they might be part of the British model. And Cyprus wasn't allowed to govern itself and, until the 1960s. Um, Malta has always stayed quite close to Britain in many ways. Now, all of this work deals only with Western Europe. Um, since the uh, collapse of state socialism, we've got some interesting cases, uh, a, a large number of, of, of new countries to look at. I'm just limiting myself today to those who 
make statistical returns to the European Commission. Um, and so I'm not looking at Belarus and Moldova and Georgia and, um, and so forth, or, or Ukraine. Um, but within uh, uh, Central Europe, we can now, we've now got quite a few cases. And I think following the same logic of historical origins, we can pick out one group um, which countries which until uh, until 1945 certainly uh, shared something of the Bismarckian tradition because these were the, the bits of Central Europe that were ruled over uh, by, uh, by, uh, by Austria and therefore developed the Austrian welfare state which is very similar to the German welfare state uh, in, including two countries which um, were part of what used to be Yugoslavia, uh, the, the, the two bits that, that were part of the Habsburg Empire. So it seems to me we might look at whether there's anything special about those compared with a kind of residual uh, group who are um, very much, with the exception of Romania, all very close to the Soviet Union. So I think in, we might have six families potentially in Europe. And one of the things I want to test today is whether we need these types in order to make sense uh, of, of the way in which social investment welfare state has developed. Uh, and the answer is not much, actually. Um, so don't, don't expect too much out of this. Um, now, um, what I want to do then is to look at a few policy areas where we can get some up-to-date data. Um, as to whether policies closely associated with new social risks and social investment welfare state have actually, how they have fared during the years of the crisis. First, looking at education. Um, th this is, I said, between, I'm looking at 2005 to 2015, uh, looking at the percent of the, this is a, a statistic you can get from all these countries, the percent of the total population engaged in some form of education or training during these years. Now, the, the names of the countries I've put in those abbreviated forms along the bottom, some of them are like Denmark are straightforward. Not everyone will know that CH is uh, Switzerland. Um, then it's Sweden, Iceland, Finland, Norway, Netherlands, Luxembourg, France, the UK, Austria, Slovenia, Estonia, Portugal, Spain, Germany. Czech Republic, Belgium, Lithuania, Hungary, Italy, Cyprus, Malta, Ireland, Latvia, Poland, Slovakia, HR is Croatia, they, they call themselves Hrvatska, uh, L is Elas of Greece, uh, Bulgaria and Romania. Uh, quite an interesting ordering that. What I, I've ranked them by where they stand now or last year in terms of the population engaged in education. Our first, first point of interest is to see what has happened over the years of the crisis? What has happened between 2005 and 2015? You see, the majority of cases, the red column is taller than the blue column, uh, which means that, um, which means that uh, there's been an increase in, in, in uh, people being involved in education. Some exceptions to it. Uh, the UK, a, a very big exception, actually. Um, a very big decline. Also declines a smaller kind in, in, in Slovenia, Latvia and Poland. 
uh, and little, little, um, uh, little declines elsewhere. Um, but it's interesting how Greece, although very, very small proportion of the Greek population involved in education, they did manage to increase it over that decade. Um, now, if you look along the line, you see, well, you, you might think, you, you see some of those welfare families coming through. I mean, the, 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 the Nordics are quite near the beginning, and, and, and uh, then you get um, quite a few of the, the northern continental ones, but mixed up with other things. Uh, you think, is there, something in the, is there something here about the welfare regimes? But there's another variable here, you see, and that is... Uh, it, it, at the beginning tend to be rich countries, at the end tend to be poor countries. So there's a rival hypothesis we've got to look at here. Are these differences in social policy just about uh, differences in national wealth? Or is there something about family, re, re, welfare state regimes? Uh, and so if we, look, just looking at the 2015 figures, uh, that, that, that is the relationship between Along the, this is the proportion involved in education. This is a statistic which is quite a useful way of looking at national wealth. It's, it's the gross domestic product or, or the national income of a country on a per capita basis um, in what are called purchasing power standards. This means that, that, that it's what you can buy with a certain number of euros in your country. So it's proof against currency uh, changes and it's proof against differences in, in costs of living. So it gets, it, it, and this is the um, income in uh, thousands of euros um, per annum uh, on average across a country. Now, for the purposes of this, I've had to take Luxembourg out because it's so rich and so unusual. Uh, and the richest country, it's, it's extraordinary to think that Ireland is now the richest country apart from Luxembourg in Europe. It's got uh, a, a, a per capita income on an average of about 50,000 euros a year. Luxembourg is 67,000. And if you include Luxembourg in, all the statistics just get distorted. Uh, no other country has that effect on it. So I've taken Luxembourg out. Um, but as you can see, uh, actually, difference in, in, in national income accounts for quite a bit of the, of the variation. You can identify um, the Nordics, or se several of the Nordics, uh, not Norway. Not Norway. Norway's got this oil wealth, which makes it a bit unusual. But the Nord yes, the Nordics are up there as, as rather exceptional, not, not explained just by uh, their... Um, uh, uh, national income. Bel Belgium and, and Germany have rather low investments in education considering uh, their, their wealth. Uh, the UK is almost the purest conforming case. Uh, it's not odd. Uh, it, um, it, it's right on the, the, the line that the, that the equation predicts. Um, so we some evidence there that uh, the Nordic countries are a bit special. Um, otherwise, there's evidence of um, big variation. Uh, I think when you get to very high income levels, uh, like Switzerland, Norway, and Ireland, probably the equa it, it prob if, if this is a true line, it probably peaks and starts to come down at a certain point. Um, if, you, if you tried to do it 
And there's not enough cases to do that with, really. Uh, so in, in general, we've got some support for an idea of welfare regimes, but not very much. We've got more support for the idea that um, you can spend a bigger proportion of your national income, on, uh, you, you can have more of, of your population in education the richer you are. Now, if uh, de developing a highly educated population is part of equipping people for the new economy and for facing new social risks, then the Matthew principle is at work. Because that means those countries that are already rich are actually going to be getting richer, and the ones who are poor are probably going to stay poor because they don't, they're not, some of, some of them are spending quite a lot on education, uh, Slovenia and Estonia. But in general, that, the Matthew principle seems to be working here. Right? So them that have more should be given, and for those who have not, uh, that, that it might be bleak. Um, now, the, the next dimension of policy I want to look at is, is it's, it's similar to education, but it's, 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 uh, it's what's called active labour market policy. And this is, it's, it's, it's a small part of... of um, of, of, of national activity. So what I'm measuring up the side here is, is uh, spending on active labour market policy as a percent of, of, national of, of GDP. Uh, and the highest is 1.4%. Is so it, this is small, but on the other hand, uh, it, can, it, it can be very important. It, it's it's the, the, that set of policies I mentioned before um, it, it, it doesn't include benefits. It includes costs of training for people who are facing unemployment, uh, advice, uh, play, uh, job placement services, that, that whole apparatus around getting people into work, including workfare, actually. Uh, and this then is interesting to look at what has happened to that over the years of the crisis. Uh, now, there's a problem with the UK here, and that is um, there's only a blue line. There's only a 2005 line for the UK because they stopped, the, this country stopped reporting after that. Perhaps they were embarrassed. But that you, after 2005, you don't find figures in, in, the, in the Eurostat data for the UK. Uh, uh, Croatia, Cyprus and Malta only start producing data in 2015, so they're not there for 2005. Uh, but again, you can see how, um, with some fairly big exceptions, very big and surprising exceptions, the Netherlands and Germany, uh, enormous drops in, in spending on active labour market policy. Uh, in general, this too, like education spending, kept going during the crisis. Um, it, it, it kept on... Um, it kept rising in a large number of cases. Um, so, interesting, um, Greece. Now, of course, there's, there's a bit of a problem here in that clearly spending of this kind tends to go up when you've got a lot of unemployed people. Um, uh, and it will come down if, you get, if, you, if unemployment goes down. Now, this doesn't explain why spending is so high in Denmark and Sweden and Finland. It, in their case, it's because they, 
they have extremely generous and elaborate policies. But in other cases, some of those where there were sudden increases, like Hungary and Greece, uh, it's because of the sudden increase in, in unemployment and, and threats of unemployment. Um, so you, you nearly need more sophisticated calculations to sort of work out a kind of... Um, well, you, you can do it, and I've tried to do this, you, you, you can do it by percent of unemployed, but it's not always about that. It, it's often about risk of unemployment rather than unemployed. So uh, it's an unsatisfactory statistic, um, but it is interesting to see how several countries with, faced with, with enormous economic problems, like Hungary and Greece, uh, managed to use active labour market policies. They did, did try to develop active labour market policies, even though um, that their level stays rather low. Again, there's a relationship between... This is why it, it's... It, it, not much of it is explained by... Um, this probably helps us explain, look at how much of it is explained by generosity of policy and how much is explained by crisis. Because this again is the line showing this spending against uh, per capita GDP at purchasing power standards. And when you, when you get these wealthy countries spending a lot on ALMP, this is generous systems. Uh, when you get countries down here doing it, this is likely to mean uh, crisis. These, uh, now, the UK is not included in this because we haven't got a figure for 2015. But that shows, again, some evidence of something unusual about at least some of the Nordic countries. Uh, but otherwise, uh, not a lot that you can generalise about. I mean, it's, it's, it's low and underdeveloped in... Um, the Baltic states, Slovakia, Croatia, um, Rom Romania. Uh, so this is, it, it, it's, it's very, with the exception of Poland, it's very much a Western policy. Germany particularly low. Norway and Ireland too. So, uh, welfare regime theory doesn't get us very far with this. Now, the, the new social risk policies were all about these new things, education, active labour market policy, family policy. But as I said, current thinking is very much saying you don't replace social protection with these policies. You actually still need social protection policies. So we should include at this stage looking at... Um, the generosity of passive labour market policies. This is, well, not just labour market policies, but, but, but social protection, which is partly unemployment pay, but mo a lot of it is pensions, disablement benefit, and, and various other kinds of, of, of social protection spending. Uh, again there, uh, during the course of the crisis, this tended to go up in a large number of countries. Um, pushed partly by the rise in unemployment that took place, but probably mainly by the rise in, in by, by population ageing. Uh, so most countries have kept the proportion of their national product that they spend on social protection um, going up. Uh, 
um, throughout the crisis years. Uh, uh, only in Poland is there any significant decline, uh, but a little bit of decline in Germany and Hungary. So in general, social protection held up against the crisis. Uh, perhaps more calls were made on it because of the crisis, but it did actually manage to do it, uh, including in countries hit by the crisis very directly. Again, looking at um, how 2015 spending stacks up against national income, again, there is a relationship. But again, um, it, it's not, it, it, you can see some, some more shape of the, the welfare policy regimes. And this is not surprising because this is old social risks, right? Uh, and so you find both the, the Nor most of the Nordic countries, the exception of Iceland and Norway, most of the Nordic countries, and also several of the so-called uh, continental ones, or nor northern continental ones, uh, and the UK, at the generous end, uh, spending more on social protection than the equation predicts uh, for their income. And you get primarily a, a, a large slab of uh, the East European, Central East European countries uh, down there uh, spending even less than you would expect them to from their low incomes, the only real exception being, being Slovenia. So something of welfare regimes as well as, um, uh, as, well as uh, income and, and also a, quite a strong element of an East-West contrast. Because the, the, the social policies, there's, there's not much of a legacy from the communist period for social policy of this kind. And anyway, uh, a lot of the governments in Central and Eastern Europe been, have been wanting to get rid of social policy rather than, rather than to develop it. This then leads us to look at another issue. And social protection is... is if, if it's part of social investment welfare state, it's partly about to what, trying, there's that phrase that's used, making work pay. Uh, making work pay means that people in employment should not be at much risk of, of falling into poverty. Uh, because it, 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 if the idea is to have a, a population that's all at work, busy working, reducing the need for benefits because they're working, then uh, th there shouldn't be many people who are employed at risk of, of poverty. Uh, and this uh, next graph shows you what's happened to um, the risk of poverty uh, among the employed. And it's, it's interesting to see how it has really come down in some of the, uh, the Central European economies. Uh, Slovakia, uh, Poland, um, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, a, a real decline uh, in, uh, in, in, in the employed population living in poverty. Actually, also uh, Czech, some of those which have very small number living in poverty anyway, the Czech Republic uh, um, there too. Some other countries have seen rises, though, in, um, uh, in uh, in people live, in the employed living in poverty, um, the debtor countries, the, the crisis countries of Southern Europe and, and Ireland, uh, except Portugal, but also uh, Germany, uh, 
uh, and one or two others. Uh, can we explain this by um, can we explain this by by national wealth? Not much, really. Um, the, 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 there's a kind of well. There's an there is an explanation. Yes, actually, you, you, the the national wealth explains quite a bit when you realise that the the, the crisis countries uh, are uh, is Greece up there. Uh, the crisis countries have particularly bad experience, uh, and then a, a number of a very varied set of countries actually uh, have uh, much lower. Uh, uh, proportions of their popu employed population at risk of poverty from, from various different places, Finland and Belgium, which they're not very high performing countries usually, especially Belgium, Czech Republic, very, very low expectations of poverty. So uh, the welfare regime theory doesn't get you very far. The crisis and debt get you some way. National wealth gets you some way. But there is also just sheer variation. Then the, the final part of social investment welfare state is the notion of reconciling work life and family life. Uh, this is this policies that have made an, an appearance only in relatively recent decades. Uh, and that is the, the, the notion that you, you need everyone, in, all the adults you can, to be able to work. One of the things that means is childcare policies. And so uh, public spending on child daycare um, once again, Britain doesn't produce figures anymore. Uh, it, we've got 2005, but we, I don't know where they are in, in 2015. Uh, you can see here quite a mix, quite a strong pattern of uh, several countries increasing this despite the crisis. So the people deciding this is something they want to do. Uh, but there is, a, there is a bit of a puzzle uh, it, it, here, in that, uh, okay, the, UK, the, 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 the main, the, 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 the motivation nowadays for childcare policies is to encourage women to work and make it possible for women to work. Now, the UK obviously is a very weak performer. I doubt if it has gone up much since 2005. It may even have gone down. Uh, but it's one of the countries which has the highest levels of female uh, labour force participation. Um, also, the Netherlands, which it's gone up quite a bit, but the Netherlands is another one with a very high level of female labour force participation. Doesn't seem to depend on childcare. The, 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 the table is led by a, a, a solid phalanx of all the Nordics. Uh, Denmark, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Iceland are the leaders in that. They have very high levels of, of female labour force participation that seems to be dependent on childcare. Now, because it, it, other things are going on in this, and the, the Dutch and the British specialise in particular in the growth of part-time work. So they have specialised in the growth of work that uh, enables women to look after their children as well as work. Um, so we, see, we do see here stronger evidence that the welfare regimes may be doing something uh, in particular, uh, the, the, the Nordic countries clearly are the countries that, that are specialising in this approach to increasing the labour force. 
increasing the female labour force. They've been doing it for a very long time. Uh, in Sweden, they started doing it back in the 70s uh, when they, well, even earlier, they faced the prospect they'd either got to do what the Germans and the French and the British and the Dutch had been doing, and that was relying on immigrants to have a bigger workforce. And they said, we don't really want that. Uh, we don't really want to dilute the homogeneity of the population. Uh, and so let's, let's facilitate women uh, going into the workforce. Other countries took exactly the opposite decision. Uh, other <coughs> countries, in particular those with strong Catholic uh, uh, policy influences, said uh, women's job, women should stay at home and be mothers and they shouldn't be in the workforce, so you should have social policy that discourages them from working. And this has then led to these fascinating, uh, now well-known uh, paradoxes of, of childbirth in that the lowest childbirth rates uh, have been in, in Catholic Europe and the highest in, in, in Scandinavia and in Britain. Um, so there is, as I say, there is something of the welfare state regimes going on here. Uh, if we look at... Clearly, the Nordic countries are in a league of their own. Continental Northern Europe, though, is a bit divided. Clearly, Luxembourg and, and Germany, Austria and France, are beginning to uh, develop public spending on child daycare. Others not. And that, it, it, this putative Anglophone group I've got, not interested in that spending. Among the Southern Europeans, only Spain. Uh, among, and, and among the rest of... Central and Eastern Europe, only Slovenia. So there is something about the welfare regime thing working here as well as sheer uh, differences in wealth. <coughs> now, if, if, as I said, the Dutch and the British are, and, and also, also uh, very low, as I said, with some of the, the East Europeans, and some of the East Europeans, especially the successor states from the Soviet Union, like the, um, the, Baltic, the three Baltic states here, uh, they have very high levels of, of female labour force participation. Uh, uh, they used to have childcare under the Soviet system, uh, but women have carried on working. I, I think it's one of these, it might, I think it's maybe Latvia, uh, actually has a majority of the workforce, more than 50% of the workforce is female. And so th there clearly are two models of of female working. There's one that is very much dependent on childcare policies and one that struggles on in their absence. That's an interesting difference that's emerging. But the fact that you've got countries that manage to achieve high levels of female labour force participation <coughs> without the relevant policies makes us ask a question that we can't really answer completely today. Uh, the question, what, what's all this about, all of it? And how do we know that the social investment welfare state achieves anything? Um, it's very much, uh, part of the problem is it's very much a future-oriented discourse. Uh, the, the, the argument is that in the world that we're now entering, it will be necessary to have an educated population, active labour market policy that supports people through periods of insecurity, a mixture of both active and passive policies, plus childcare to ensure we're going to do, do two gender workforce. This is a future. It's a future that's rapid to become in the present, but it's a future. So you can't, you can't actually test it yet, really. Um, 
except to the extent are there mutual causes. I mean, I've been looking at national income in relation to these things, and we're looking at national income as something that might explain why countries differ in the amount they, they do of a particular policy type. But it might be the other way around. It might be that the, uh, the economic uh, success is the result of the policies. Unlikely, I think, because we're still in the early years of this. But it does, it does raise the question as to um, what do we expect to be achieved by this? Um, and it, if the Matthew principle is working, is this, going to, is, is this going to lead to greater divergence among European societies? If, 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 the, if the poorer countries can do less of this kind of policy making, um, then, uh, and if it's right that the future belongs with those policies, then what happens to those countries? Now, coming back to looking at the welfare state regimes, uh, we've seen there is something odd about the Nordics, right? The, the Nordic countries clearly are still on a kind of path of their own. They're developing this kind of policy in a way much greater than you would expect to be predicted by, by their national income. Uh, the, the, the Northwestern Euro Europeans, including the British, and there isn't any case really for seeing, and there's a case for seeing Ireland as odd, uh, but there isn't any case here for seeing Britain as an unusual case, except for its very low investment in active labour market policy and uh, family policy. But in, in general, the, the Northwestern Europe seems to be at a path uh, where you would expect it to be. Um, there is a particular puzzle about Germany. Germany came out of several of these things as a country where policies that were there 10 years ago seem to be in a state of collapse. Uh, and it's very interesting to look at what's been happening in German social policy because, and I've included Germany as, as it should be among the Northwest European countries, but 25 years ago, a fifth of it was actually in, in, in Eastern Europe. It was, it, was part of the, it was part of the Soviet bloc. And Germany, over the last quarter of a century, has incorporated a fifth of, its, of a population who were who extremely poor and coming from a totally different kind of economic system, which promptly collapsed. And the country has gone through quite remarkable uh, changes in order to cope with that. For several years, it, 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 it went into economic decline. Uh, it had to invest enormous sums of money and, and run up enormous public debt in order to try to bring the Eastern lender up somewhere near the Western lender. Uh, and although there are still enormous inequalities between East and, uh, and West Germany, it is the case today that the the difference in income between the richest part of Germany, which I think is still Hamburg, and the poorest, which is Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, uh, is smaller than the difference between Wales and South East England. So in a way, in 25 years, Germany has succeeded in reducing its intra-regional uh, inequalities to a, a degree that this country hasn't done in, in 200 years of, of national integration. Uh, it's, that came at a price. 
it came at a price of enormous wage restraint. Because Germany has a collective bargaining system based on the export industries, in which the trade unions know that if they, if they push up wage increases too far, uh, they will uh, create unemployment. And so they're willing to hold back wages in order to sustain employment. Uh, and so for a long while, German wages stagnated. And they've also had this assault on various aspects of the welfare state. Uh, in particular, problematic have been reforms to the ben benefits to the unemployed, uh, a series of reforms known as the Hartz reforms. Uh, a man called Peter Hartz, who um, was the head of personnel relations at, at um, Volkswagen, was brought in by the Social Democratic Green government to redesign the welfare system. Uh, in particular, particularly controversial was his final one, the fourth one, called Hartz Fear, which was really made an attack on the living standards of the poor uh, in Germany. Um, you don't hear much about Peter Hartz anymore. Uh, he went to prison um, for a series of corrupt payments at Volkswagen, including the entertainment of prostitutes on the company premises and at the company's expense. So he's no longer a hero. Um, uh, and the, the Hart's fear created such tension in the German le political left that the Social Democratic Party actually split. And a group called the Die Linken, the left, went off and then made the fatal mistake of partnering the remnant of the old uh, social uni Socialist Unity Party of Eastern Germany. Um, now, if you, in this country, the Labour Party has a problem that it can't go into coalition with the Social Scottish National Party, even if they might have similar policies, because the Scottish Nationalist Party wants, doesn't, want, doesn't believe in the unit that it would be participating in. They've got a bigger problem in Germany because you can't really partner up with a party that was governing the Stasi uh, and, and all those uh, for, for so many years. So the, the social democracy has been fatally weakened, really. Um, in, in Germany by an inability to make coalitions with the Lincoln. Uh, and it's also suffered these enormous uh, reversals in the strength of its welfare state. And these are, in a way, a continuing price of unification. Uh, and what's interesting is this year, there is a, an announcement of a policy change. And the German government is adopting virtually all the, 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 aspect, the attributes of the social investment welfare state, which it hadn't, it hadn't embraced before. It's now done, and the reasoning that's led it to do that is very interesting. Germany, like a lot of Central Europe, uh, East and West, has very, very low, and Southern Europe, has very, very low birth rate. And it's, it's, it's aging, and it hasn't got enough working people to support its pensioner population. Uh, now, a long-term approach for that is try and get German women to, uh, to enter the workforce uh, uh, while also having babies. Uh, and what the, the German women are choosing to enter the workforce rather than have babies. So if you childcare policy, you might get like the Swedes uh, and get them into the workforce. But they know that's long-term. In the short term, they need immigrants, large numbers of immigrants. And immigrants come in with relatively low educational levels, especially the ones that think this is not East European immigration so much as, as refugees. Uh, they will need education, so they need to increase their education spending and active labour market policies. So Germany has come into social investment welfare state um, 
because of a felt need to increase the size of its workforce and to increase the quality of its workforce. Meanwhile, as I said, the main thing that seems to explain change in all these countries is, is, is not so much the welfare, fam welfare regimes, the, it, 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 the, the past, whether you had a Bismarckian system or an English British system or you had uh, or you're a, 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 a successor state to the Soviet Union, to, 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 to the Soviet bloc, that doesn't so much explain uptake of these policies as the sheer national wealth. In other words, the, the, the Matthew principle as a worker. And this raises really big questions for, in particular, the countries of Southern Europe, uh, Southwest Europe, the, the debtor states. Uh, the, the, those economies, the, the, it, it, even Italy, but definitely Spain, Portugal and Greece, their role in Europe was to be the low-cost producers. Uh, they, they, they either produced goods that are usually cheap, like clothing and textiles, uh, or uh, they could they would produce machinery and, and machine tools and of that kind, but always cheaper than the Germans could do. And they safeguarded that position by uh, constant devaluations of their currencies uh, so that they could keep this, their role in Europe as the low-cost producers. Now, come the 1990s, that role was fatally threatened by two developments. First of all, there was something called the multi-fibre agreement which was a, a, a set, it wasn't really an agreement, it was a set of tariffs imposed by the United States, Europe, and the rest of the advanced world on imports of clothing and textile goods from Asia uh, in particular. And this kept Chinese, uh, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indonesian textiles and other products at bay and enabled the Portuguese, the Italians, the Spanish, the Greeks to continue to produce profitably in those areas. Second thing that happened in 1990 is the, the appearance of the Central European countries in the capitalist world market. So now you have, uh, especially in what was then Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Slovenia, uh, some very skillful, well-equipped engineering uh, firms, well, uh, uh, certainly engineering skills, engineering infrastructure, able to produce motor cars and similar products much more cheaply than could be done uh, in, uh, in Southern Europe. So the Southern European countries were faced with the collapse of their model. They could no longer be the uh, low-cost producers because the multi-fibre agreement ended in the early 90s. That, since then, uh, we've been able to buy without tariffs uh, goods from China and, and India and Pakistan and so forth. And the East Europeans arrived. Uh, the, the role of low-cost producer wasn't there. Uh, what were they to do? And the, 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 the wisdom that was especially there in Italy, but it was also shared in the other countries, was we've got to get out of being the low-cost producers. We, we mustn't keep on devaluing our currency because that way we just get into the role of trying to be cheaper and cheaper. We need to be stopped from doing that. Then we have an incentive to move up market. And the answer was, of course, to make sure they join the euro because that stopped you devaluing. And in theory, that gave you the incentive to move up market. 
there were just two major problems with that. First, uh, no one at that point knew that financial markets were going to develop in a way that would take uh, uh, huge quantities of state debt and let you run up enormous deficits uh, instead, of actually, instead of confront the hard choices. Uh, second thing was that the, 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 the problem is economists believe if you create a space in which people have got a pressure on them to do something, they will do it. But the question is, how do you know they'll do it? How do you know they won't just collapse? That, economists can't answer that. Because uh, what they needed to do, as well as just joining the euro and getting this de anti-devaluation incentive, they needed also to find ways of moving up market. You need public policy to, to do that, including the social investment welfare state. Not only that, because but today we're just talking about social policy. Social policy is one of a number of areas where if you really are serious about becoming an upmarket producer instead of a downmarket producer, you need education, active labour market policy, making it possible for educated women to join the workforce. You need all those things. But if you don't have enough incentive to do those things, uh, then you, you, and if you've got the chance instead just to keep borrowing money from the financial markets, then you, you do what they have done. And now they face the problem of really needing to develop these policies, but being so constrained by their debt that they can't do it. And so it seems to me the, 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 if we're going to get wel the welfare regimes that will matter in the future are those, among, are those of the Matthew Principle, that the, the wealthy countries, whether they're in Sweden or Britain or Belgium, will be able to... To, to take advantage of all these, these new possibilities. And increasingly, uh, the Southern Europeans and the Central Europeans and the further Eastern Europeans will be forced into down market mode. Uh, the main exception are probably a small number of Central European countries, like Czech Republic and Slovenia, who uh, have got economies very heavily dependent on Western multinationals, but which do uh, combined with some positive bits of the Soviet legacy, enable them actually, possibly, to, to become uh, upmarket producers uh, earlier and more effectively than, than in particular Greece. So I think at the end of the story is the welfare regime theory doesn't explain very much about what's going on at the moment. Uh, instead, the, uh, the implications of the Matthew Principle and the possibility of greater divergence in Europe probably explains rather more. Thank you.